0: Hello, and welcome to a very special episode of The Higher Ed Marketer. You've probably not heard my voice before, so please let me introduce myself. I'm Rob Conlon, executive producer of this show. It's been my pleasure to work with Bart and Troy over the past year to create this show to help the higher ed marketing space grow and improve in these challenging times. Before we dive into today's episode, with very special guest Brian Kenny of the Harvard Business School, I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge the absolute truckload of hard work and dedication from Bart and Troy that makes this podcast work. Their willingness to show up week after week with amazing guests has led this show to be named number four on Terminal 4's 2021 list of the top 10 podcasts for higher ed marketing and recruitment teams. I'm incredibly proud of both of them and this show for shedding new light on the cutting edge of marketing for higher ed institutions. And I certainly hope that you'll enjoy this episode, not only for our renowned guest, but with also some of the new additional touches that just make it shine a little bit more. So please sit back and enjoy this deeply insightful conversation today and help us celebrate 50 fabulous episodes of The Higher Ed Marketer.
1: You're listening to The Higher Ed Marketer, a podcast geared towards marketing professionals in higher education. This show will tackle all sorts of questions related to student recruitment, donor relations, marketing trends, new technologies, and so much more. If you're looking for conversations centered around where the industry is going,
2: this podcast is for you. Let's get into the show.
3: Welcome to the Higher Ed Marketer Podcast. I'm Troy Singer, and I'm here with my co-host and most sincerely, one of the... Best business partners I could ever have, Bart Kaler, and today we are bringing you our fiftieth episode of the Higher Ed Marketer Podcast. How does it feel to be fifty, Bart?
1: It's pretty incredible. It's for the second time for me, uh, <laughs> <laughs> or as years, I should say. But um, yeah, I'm I'm so proud of the the work that has gone in over the last year, and it's been an honor to to share that road with you, Troy.
3: Thank you. And today, our guest is Brian Kenney, who is the CMO of the Harvard Business School. And our conversation with him today is really, what is the truth about managing a very strong popular brand. And Bart, the reason why we felt it would be good to have this conversation is so often you and I are encountering people that saying, if I managed a brand like Harvard, it would be an easy marketing job. So you, to your credit, reached out and was able to get the CMO of Harvard as a guest so we could talk to him about that and then get some other thoughts that are very interesting about the CMO role. Yeah,
1: I thought it was a it was a great opportunity, and I was really thrilled that Brian you know reached back out so quickly and said, uh, "Wow, you've got a great uh, podcast, and a, a really impressive list of uh, folks you've talked to." So thank you all the previous uh, folks that we've we've had as, as guests. But um, really, the question came down to is, do the elite of the elite really need to be able to market? And I think that you'll find this conversation really a good one. I think Brian kind of uh, kind of lets you in on some of the things that that he's challenged as as chief marketing officer of the Harvard Business School. And he'll go into some of the details that are unique to Harvard. But in essence, really pay attention because a lot of this is is not unique to Harvard. It's unique to higher education marketing. And so I think he really gives you some great f- feedback and great tips that you can apply to your own school.
3: Yes. The first half is really about that and Harvard Business School overall and its podcast but then the second part is about the H bomb and without <laughs> further ado here is Brian Kenny We are proud to welcome Brian Kenny Chief Marketing and Communications Officer for the Harvard Business School to the Higher Ed Marketer podcast Brian thank you so much for joining us if we could ask you first tell us a little bit about yourself and then also your role at the Harvard Business School.
2: Sure. Well, first, I'm thrilled to be here. Great to be a guest on your show. I'm the Chief Marketing and Communications Officer at Harvard Business School. I have the uh, distinction, I guess, of being the first to hold that title, which is a mixed blessing, which we'll probably talk about uh, at some point. But I've been in this role for uh, coming up on 14 years, which anybody knows that, you know, in a marketer's life, 14 years is like five eternities. It's a really, really long time to be in the same role. And I think a little bit it speaks to the nature of, you know, the excitement and dynamic nature of Harvard Business School. Uh, I've been in and out of, of higher education throughout my career. I've worked at three major universities in Boston, plus a small college, always in a, a marketing communications role. But I also stepped out for you know a decade or so and worked in uh, the private sector in both professional services and high tech. So I've, I've had, you know, a little bit of experience in other worlds that I brought back to higher ed when I when I returned to this sector. And I think it helped me to see things maybe from a different perspective than somebody who's always been in, in higher education. And these days, you know, I have lots of conversations with people who have always been in the private sector and they're thinking about their next career and they, they really want to explore higher ed as an opportunity. So um, I think it's a great thing for anybody to explore. I also think it's the most challenging marketing role that that you can have and I'm happy to to go deeper on that and explain why I, why I believe that to be true Harvard Business School for those of you for those of your listeners who aren't you know, they know the name but if they're not familiar with the enterprise we are about a billion dollar enterprise eight hundred and fifty million roughly to a billion. And we're known for the MBA program, which is where we started, first school ever to, uh, to grant the Master's in Business Administration. But we also have an executive education program that, that uh, you know, teaches about 12,000 executives who come through a year. We have an online program. We're reaching tens of thousands of people a year. And we have a publishing enterprise that does Harvard Business Review, as well as business books uh, and and um, a whole host of other kinds of publications, as well as corporate training products. So it's a pretty diverse institution, all focused on management education in one realm or another.
1: That's great. Thank you, Brian, for giving us that introduction. And, and certainly, that's a that's a large portfolio for a, for a chief marketing and communications officer to manage. How, how does that, I mean, certainly part of it is, is what I would consider traditional higher education, but then there's aspects of it are, you know, the publishing arm and other things like that. How do how are you kind of relating all that together? And maybe that goes back to your initial comment about, you know, it's one of the hardest marketing roles that, that you can do.
2: Yeah, it does a little bit. I I think that's true, no matter what, institution you're in I think education is you know the, the 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 various audiences that you have to think about as a as a marketing person in education is quite different than if you're selling a particular product or service. It's easier. To identify that target market that you've got in those other endeavors in education, you've got to think about students and alumni, and you know, town gown issues and the general public, and you know, so the the academy, all these other audiences that you've got to think about. So you're constantly shape shifting from one meeting to the next, where you might be talking about a social media strategy in the first meeting that's targeted to prospective students, and then you're having a meeting about how are you going to deal with this building construction project that you've got going in the heart of the city and you've got, you know, neighbors around you that are riled up about it. So I think it's challenging because of the it's constantly calling on you to adapt and to address different kinds of situations. You know, if I think about my role at, at Harvard Business School, that business experience that I had really became very helpful to me here. When I was in professional services, I was working for management consulting firms, and I got a really deep dive on the kinds of issues that C-level executives have to think about on a day-to-day basis. And that experience, when I when i came to harvard business school it felt like the combination of the educational experience that i had plus the business background you know really came full circle and dovetailed nicely at a place like hbs which is a little bit like A business, and a little bit like an educational institution. You know, we're bringing both of those worlds together. And one of the things that HBS is is known for is that the business case studies that we write are based on actual business issues that leaders, challenges that leaders have had. And so, uh, you know, the way that our faculty think, the way that the leadership team runs the school, is very much like you would see in in a corporate setting, where we're thinking a lot about the business strategy of the of the school.
3: Great. Great. Brian, another aspect of the business school is that you have your own podcast. And if you could tell us about Cold Call and what its mission is and maybe how the university utilizes that podcast and its marketing efforts.
2: Yeah, I would love to talk about my podcast. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for the opportunity. Uh, no, I, yeah, so I, I love podcasts. I, I listen to them. I've listened to them for a long time. And, um, you know, I I, I saw when, when podcasting became a little bit more accessible because bandwidth became better and you could actually listen to podcast when you were on the go, that to me marked an opportunity for us to think about a different way of getting the word out about uh, the work at Harvard Business School. My job, the, the job that I described for my team that we do every day is to tell stories that animate the mission of the school and the work of the school. And part of that is bringing the voices of the people who are doing the work to the surface. And when I say voices, I can mean that literally, or I can mean it in writing and other ways, but podcasts are really a great way to human Somebody. And for a long time, there was a mystique about Harvard Business School, and that worked for probably the first 80 or 90 years of our existence. But we live in a, a time where people want transparency, they want access. Social media has made that available. And I think it's really helped us to help people see that the, the things that that faculty and students at HBS do are very impressive and very ambitious, and they are changing the world in many ways. But at the same time, these are just people. And when you hear them talk about the, the business cases they write and the work that they do, it really brings it right down to earth and humanizes them and knocks away a lot of the mystique that maybe creates a barrier between us and the public. And one other thing I would say about Cold Call, every episode features me talking to a faculty member about a business case they've written. We teach by the case method and many other business schools have adopted the case method as a way of teaching. Every case is a story and every story is something that anybody who's in any aspect of business should be able to listen to and pull a lesson away from. So we think it's a great way to show the relevance of case method research. That's
1: great. And I, I guess I would do a follow-up question on that on that, Brian, is the fact that you know, you talk about authenticity and, and being able to show that real aspect of, of the faculty and of, of HBS and other aspects of of the institution. Would you say that that's even more important? I mean, certainly podcasts allow you to do that, but isn't that more important for the generations that we're dealing with, like millennials and, and Z's and, and, you know, mm-hmm. I'm an Xer. I think that, you know, it's that mystique still kind of plays in a little bit with, with, with our generation, I think. But I think as you get further younger generations, that mystique starts to kind of rub them a little bit the wrong way. And and they do want that awesome authenticity. Is, it, is that what you're finding?
2: Yeah, I think that's definitely true. Um, and you know, I feel like everybody's got their mobile device in their hand all the time. We've got a generation now coming up who are you know they they're looking at TikTok, they're looking at short form video. You know, they 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 don't necessarily want to have to. I, I think there's a couple of dynamics. One is. They want the information to be there when they want it, when they need it, when they're ready to consume it. Podcasts are on demand. So, you know, you can you can download that anytime you want. They're very convenient in terms of being able to listen to them while you're doing something else. And I think it's a medium that allows the listener to go deeper than they would if they were just scrolling through their feed. Right. You know, they're going to look, maybe a two-minute video, but they're willing to invest in a 20 or 30-minute podcast if the content is good and relevant and if they're in a place where they're going to be there for 20 or 30 minutes. So for a lot of us, that's the car during our commute or that's the gym when you're you're on the treadmill. Podcasts have made it really easy for people to, again, enjoy long-form content, whereas... I wouldn't expect a lot of people in my children's generation, they're in their 20s, mm-hmm. to read a Harvard Business Review article. I just I just wouldn't. And that's a, a reality that I think we're all reckoning with, and HBR has known this for a while. They've scaled back from monthly issues to bi-monthly, so they do six printed issues a year. And even within those issues, they have experimented with shorter articles and you know, case briefs and things like that as a way to address this. And they also do podcasts, obviously, right. um, you know, so so I think podcasts are, are, are solving a number of different challenges that, that we encounter when we're trying to take complex ideas and make them relatable.
1: That's great. That's great. And kind of as an, another, you know, kind of going into another direction here, when we talk about, you know, the authenticity and that mystique and and other elements around that, and, and I think that, you know, you and I talked in the in the preview with, with Troy in the uh, pre-interview, I kind of joked with you about the idea that so many times I have, you know, some of my clients who bemoan a little bit to say, "Boy, if I were Harvard, I wouldn't have to market as hard." And uh, you know, you'd reference something about what's what you kind of call the H bomb. Tell us a little bit yeah. about that and how that relates to to kind of what I'm hearing on my end.
2: Sure. Um, so, so the H bomb is a. By the way, I will say that when I got this job. You know, I called my mother, um, who my mother who who is a huge fan of Harvard University, and uh, and she was elated that I got hired to work at Harvard Business School, uh, and she said after a, a minute or so of congratulatory comments, she said, "But wait a second, why do they need a, a chief marketing officer?" Which is a question I get a lot. Yeah. And I understand it, believe me. Um, so I, I would say that the the H bomb phenomenon is something that Harvard alumni speak about pretty regularly, and it, it boils down to people who are affiliated with Harvard, whether it's faculty or or alumni or you know students or staff. They're always a little careful how they introduce that credential into a conversation, because the Harvard brand, although it is well-known and well-respected in most circles it's also viewed negatively you know in a lot of ways people think about it as an elitist Brand. They they think that people who are part of Harvard University are you know intellectual elites or academic elites. They're arrogant. You know at Harvard Business School we hear about words like greedy and self-centered a lot. I understand those perceptions exist, and I be candidly I had some of those. Mm-hmm. You know when when you work at other institutions it's easy to look at a place like Harvard and say man they've got it easy. You know look at that endowment. <laughs> now anybody who knows about endowments knows that you can't. It's not like a bank. You can't go right. withdraw money from the endowment. You need them. They're important, but they're also earmarked for a lot of things. So I think a big part of our job, you know, those of us who are in marketing roles across Harvard University, and I should just clarify, I only do marketing for the business school. Um, Harvard is a very decentralized place and the law school has their own person and the Kennedy School and so on and so forth. But I think a big part of my job is to help knock down those misperceptions about what it's like being at Harvard. We are an elite institution, and I think that's important, and that's a big part of our identity. But we're not elitist. You know, we want the best people from around the world to come and study and work and teach at Harvard Business School. For us, it's very, very important to have as diverse a group as as possible, and that means diversity in every realm. So, you know, the more that the better job that we can do helping anybody who hears about us, see themselves at Harvard business school, you know, that's important for us to continue to work on.
1: That's great. And I, and I think you even talked about too, that, you know, sometimes, um, you know, anything, something bad happens in business, eyes get turned a little bit to, to HBS and, and kind of talk a little bit about that.
2: Yeah. I think I told you, I started in 2008 in April and, um, October of that year Lehman Brothers folded and the world economic collapse hit and uh, was very uh, you know that happened on a Friday and the emails that were flying around over the weekend were basically you know between the dean and the leadership team were it's not going to be long before the world points their finger at Harvard Business School and says why did you let this happen and that is something that sort of goes hand in hand with beating with being the category leader you know hbs has looked at as sort of the you know one of the pinnacle business schools in the world and there's a couple of others that that are in that rarefied air but we're certainly one of them and uh it's understandable that when you know something goes wrong in, in the business world the connective tissue between hbs and wall street is pretty strong and i you know i understand that people look at us for that so we talked at that time and ever since then where we face criticism like this, our first reaction is not to be defensive. It's to be uh, self-critical. It's to look at ourselves and say, well, wait a second. Is there some truth to this? Should we be thinking about what we're hearing here and should it in some way uh, cause us to change the way that we think about how we do our jobs and how we educate students. So self-accountability is kind of the first reaction. And I would say that you know over the years there's been many instances, and in fact there's been books about every three years somebody writes a you know a, a book that's critical of the business school. You know we always read that. Uh, there's always going to be a certain a portion of it that is a little hyperbolic, and you know um, and that we can easily cast off but there's almost always a kernel of truth to something that's in there and we have to be able to read that and then be circumspect about it and look at ourselves and make sure that we are being authentic to to what we say we are so that's kind of the 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 reaction that we have when those things happen
1: yeah and I, and I love the fact that you know a lot of what's coming out of this conversation is the idea that while yes it's a recognizable brand and yes you've got some challenges in the way that the the H bomb and other things like that. At the end of the day, it's a lot about managing that tension and managing those, um, you know, the classic Venn diagram where you've got, you know, what, what the world believes you are and who you really are and what they need. And, you know, kind of finding that, you know, soft spot in the middle. It seems like that could be a, applied to really any school, whether it's a, a large elite school like HBS or whether it's a, a small private that has a few hundred students. It's it's really managing that tension of who you are, what you're known for, and what that student needs.
2: Yeah, I, I agree with that completely. And I would say that every academic institution, to some extent, faces the same challenge that Harvard does. Harvard has it. Harvard's been around longer than the rest. So I, there's a a term that we talk about called heritage brands, you know, and, and, and most academic brands are heritage brands to some extent. They've got a history that they, that that's a really important part of their identity and their value system. And, and that history is important to hold on to. At the same time, if you let that be your defining brand characteristic, then you're kind of stuck in time and you can't really be looked at as innovative and forward thinking. So the tension that we're always trying to balance is you know Harvard University's been around for 300 I don't know 70 plus years or something Harvard Business School's been around for 114 years at this point we love our past we love our heritage at the same time we don't want people to think that we aren't innovative and entrepreneurial right. so we we try to hold on to the qualities of the past that we think give us strength and demonstrate our leadership And at the same time, we want people to know that we are thinking about the future of management education, not the past.
3: That's great. In our previous conversation, you had mentioned both some advantages and some obstacles that I want to make sure we revisit in our conversation today. One of them that was an aha for me is when you're managing a strong brand or what's perceived to be a strong brand there's an issue with not being able to create a sense of urgency. And I would like to know if you can let everyone know what you mean by that.
2: Yes. Uh, ha- happy to. Um, so, yes, I mean, one of the, so it's great when things are going well and your brand is strong and it's well-recognized. Of course, that's wonderful. And, you know, um, we have the benefit of having very generous alumni who uh, who have been generous to, uh, to us throughout the years. And that's why we have such a big endowment and, and fundraising base. I think, the the flip side to that is it's hard to create a sense of urgency when there's no burning platform you know if you're in the private sector if you're in a firm where sales aren't where they need to be and you know you're not going to make your targets maybe you're a public company And you got to make your goal before the next quarterly report. It's in the marketing role in those situations, it's pretty easy to say, we need more funds to go do this and fix this thing, or else we're not, you know, we're going to be in real trouble. That urgency has never existed uh, in that way at the time that I've been at Harvard Business School. In fact, the school had never run a deficit until two years ago. Was it two years ago? It might have been last year. I get my fiscal years mixed up. But when COVID hit, like everybody else, we had to, on a dime move everything to remote, and that meant we had to shut down our executive education program, which was a huge cut hit to the school's financials. As a result of that of, of you know twelve plus months of not having executive education, we ran a deficit one year, and that was a big a big blow, you know, in terms of our, our ability to always operate as an efficient business, which we pride ourselves on. That's really the closest we've come to having a burning platform in the time that I've been there. And that wasn't something that marketing could fix. That was, that unfortunately, <laughs> that, was a, that was a pandemic and we're still kind of facing that a little bit. So I think we, we often, I often find myself in the situation where I am really advocating for brand maintenance and maintenance matters. If you don't, if you don't maintain your foundation, your brand is your foundation. And if you're not working to make sure that that foundation stays strong, then erosion will happen. You know, you have to actively manage it, or erosion will happen. That's an argument that I'm able to make that I think people understand at the business school because we take a lot of pride in making sure that we maintain our educational foundation and we maintain the foundation of the physical campus that we're on because it's such an important part of what we do. So I found a way to kind of make that my my argument, you know, for investing in in uh, the marketing organization and in actively managing the brand. It might work for some of your other listeners. I don't yeah, know. That's
1: great. I, I I really like how that. How that plays out. And I think that uh, that's a great example. And, and you're right. I mean, the pandemic has impacted everybody. And it's kind of evened out a lot of a lot of those things. And it's, it's interesting to me that and I'm sure a lot of our listeners would find too that, you know, being able to pivot like that, I mean, Some folks weren't able to pivot. I mean, so many people say, oh, well, we just went into our online platform. Well, there were a lot of schools that didn't have an online platform or didn't have, you know, like with your executive education, uh, that was not a a possibility. So it's, it's interesting that, you know, we are all trying to figure things out in this time as well.
3: Sure. Another challenge that you face, Brian, is when something happens that's popular or maybe negative in the business community, fingers get pointed at Harvard, rightly or wrongly again, if you can explain that scenario and, you know, how you manage that or how that affects your role.
2: Yeah. Um, so, you know, I I think, I think for our our first reaction, whenever those kinds of things happen is that we want to take a, we want to listen to what's being said. and We want to take a hard look at ourselves before, you know, I find that, um, the, the, the instinctual, Reaction of of being defensive rarely works, and this is true in every place I've been, whether it's been in higher education or in the private sector. You know, you you can't you can't be defensive without sounding defensive, and mm-hmm. oftentimes we find that there is some truth to what some of those uh, th- those criticisms might be about the school. So the first thing we try to do is take a hard look at ourselves and say, is there some truth here? Is there something we should be doing differently? Uh, As a way to address this issue. Our students are often, you know, uh, challenging us on the decisions that we make as an institution. And I think every this is something we all face in higher education is that we've got smart, ambitious students. We're surrounded by them and they're looking at what we're doing and they're looking at us as examples uh, of, of how to lead. And they're going to challenge us when they think we're not making the right decisions. So again, we try to take that posture of saying, well, let's take a step back and, and listen to what they're saying. And you know, if there's some validity to their concerns, then we need to address that. You know, So that really extends into our leadership style, I think, generally speaking. I'm fortunate to be part of a leadership team that's been largely intact the whole time that I've been there. We've turned over a few key positions. But uh, if you look at the, uh, the way that the school has been run from the administrative side, that management team has been pretty solid. And, and I feel like um, we've been able to weather the storm through things like the pandemic and the Black Lives Matter movement, which, you know, really caused all of us. That's probably a good thing to just pause on for a second we had always talked about the importance of, of inclusivity and and diversity. Uh, and we believed it, I think, you know, it was important to us, but it was always just kind of, it was in the ether, but it wasn't really something that we were really doubling down on. And the murder of George Floyd and the, and the, the emergence of the black lives matter movement made us and pretty much everybody else go, wait a second, you know, there's something different about this. We really have to think hard about this. So, um, You know this leadership team that I'm fortunate to be part of. We really focused in on that, and the dean did, and the academic leadership dean did, and we involved the students. And I'm I'm happy to say that the outcome of that has been a sustained, uh, really intensive effort to improve racial equity across Harvard Business School, to bring in you know diverse faculty, to bring in a more diverse student population. And there's a plan that we've now got in place, and we're following the plan, and we're seeing the the progress that's. That's come about as a result of that, you know. That's a, a situation where the criticism was warranted, and you know we, we've done something about it. Um, so I, I like that we're able to, I think, respond to these situations and rise to the occasion. Um, and you know, I think it's important that that we all try to do that in our in our roles as leaders in these institutions.
3: Brian, as we close our episode today, as everyone knows, we see Harvard as the gold standard. We'd like to ask for a last piece of advice for you from you. So, if there's a piece of advice that you would offer other marketing officers that they could implement right away, what would that piece of advice be?
2: Uh, it's a really great question. It's a really hard question, Troy. Thank you. Thank you for leaving me with a hard one. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I'm going to give the advice that I, I often give to people when they start at. Harvard Business School. I talked about the h-bomb earlier. There's a, there's another phenomenon that happens and I think it happens, you know, in all walks of life, not just at places like Harvard, but it, maybe it's a little more, you know, intense at Harvard, where the students on the first day of class where they're being welcomed by the dean will often talk about sitting there thinking oh, my God, they made a mistake. How did I get into this place? What am I doing here? They picked the wrong person. And I think if you talk to pretty much anybody who starts a new job anywhere, you know, who finds themselves in a position where they've all, all of a sudden got new challenges and they've got to manage people, and yeah, you know, they probably are thinking the same thing, like, oh, my God, I faked my way into this thing, and now what am I going to do? I've got to really live up to it, and I've got to deliver. So on the one hand, I would say that kind of... Um, you know, self-doubt is not a bad thing because it makes you really focus and think hard about what you have to do. On the other hand, I would say that from where I sit now, having been in, you know, different roles for many, many years, I'm not going to tell you how old I am, but I'm probably older than most of your listeners. I would say for me, the one thing that has helped and that I tell other people to do is to listen, you know, really listen to what people are saying and listen twice as much as you speak leaders some leaders have a tendency i think to feel like they need to solve the problem right away you know they need to come in, step into the meeting and you know and size things up quickly and show that they're decisive and oftentimes if you just let things play out and you let the conversation play out for a while good ideas will emerge and you know maybe your job is just to facilitate those and to keep them coming out and you do that by clearing the air and just kind of letting people offer their advice and insights and expertise, because chances are you're surrounded by pretty smart, capable people. And if you give them an opportunity, um, you know, you might be surprised at, at what they're able to accomplish. And then you just get the glow effect of uh, of working with them. So I would say my advice, something you could start right away is to just really step back and and listen, uh, you know, with intent.
3: Thank you very much, Brian, for that. We really appreciate you being our guest on our 50th episode. We wanted this to be a special episode and you've certainly delivered. For anyone who would like to contact you to continue the conversation or follow up on one of the points that you made, what would be the best way for them to contact you?
2: Sure. Uh, well, first of all, thank you for it. for It's quite an honor to be, uh, you know, your fiftieth guest. I really do appreciate that. So, so uh, Bart and Troy, thank you for having me uh, as your fiftieth guest, and I've enjoyed the conversation. Uh, I'm happy to uh, keep an eye. People can find me on Twitter at hbscmo. That's probably the best and easiest way to get to me. Uh, so happy to uh, if they want a direct message even or, or that kind of thing. I'm happy to respond.
3: Great. Thank you. Thank you, Brian. Bart, do you have any words that you would like to leave us with on our 50th episode
1: yeah this has been quite an episode so brian thank you um a couple things that i just wanted to point out and kind of pull out from some of the things that brian had said i think so many times and and he kind of alluded to this in several different points but we all like to look at the other side of the fence and say oh look how green the grass is over there and boy that would be a nice problem to have and all everybody has their own challenges it doesn't matter if if we're you know a small private college that we've talked to—that you know, a lot of you out there listening are small private colleges—and and, and I, I know who you are, as well as all the way up to you know the oldest institution in the country, Harvard U- University. We all have our own challenges. We all have our own victories and our own successes. Sometimes it's better to just kind of you know take a step back and listen and get your breath and just kind of go back to some of the basics of blocking and tackling and marketing. And so I I think that was a really good point. Um, You know, we all have different senses of urgency, and sometimes you don't have that, which is another problem. And so I think that Brian kind of pointed out that there's a lot of similarity all the way through higher ed. I really appreciated him saying that the role of a higher ed marketer is sometimes one of the hardest roles in marketing, period. And I think that that's something that... um, you might want to take back to your cabinet and your and your leadership and let them know that the CMO of HBS said this. So um, I, I think that, you know, because we've, we've talked to Ethan Braden at Purdue and his notion of, you know, we need to be the drivers on campus of the brand and of the marketing when it comes out of the marketing department. We can't be driven. We can't be the short order cooks who have to make it look prettier by Monday. So I, I think there's a lot of really good things to kind of hone in and take into these things and, and really kind of apply to your own campus. I also really appreciated uh, just the intentionality that that I hear in, in Brian personally as well as in Harvard Business School because I mean he talked a little bit about the the DEI types of things with inclusivity and with and with the uh, Black Lives Matter and the and the intentionality that, that Harvard has put together with a plan. I think those types of things and even his last tip there where he talked about just the quite honestly the intentionality of 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 Im- improving your Im- emotional intelligence of being able to slow down, being able to listen when you feel like you might want to th- talk. I think those types of things of being an intentional Marketer, an intentional person, an intentional member of the team is going to be so critical. So again, thank you so much, Brian. Really honored to have you on the show today.
2: That was a nice summation, Bart. Appreciate that. (laughs) And congratulations to you guys on 50 episodes, by the way. I know as a podcaster, that's a big number. That's a good one.
3: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. We are very proud of that. And I want to thank everyone for joining us on another edition our 50th episode of the Higher Ed Marketer podcast, which is sponsored by Kaler Solutions, an education marketing and branding agency, and by Think Patented, a marketing execution company combining personalization and customization for your print and mailing campaigns. On behalf of Bart Kaler, my co-host, I'm Troy Singer. Thank you for joining our 50th episode.
1: You've been listening to the Higher Ed Marketer, To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you're listening with Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to leave a quick rating of the show. Simply tap the number of stars you think the podcast deserves. Until next time.